So I was just told that I have to stay behind the podium and talk into the mic, so I'm going to have a hard time, but uh, I'll try to contain myself. Um, this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. Um, and before we start, I'm going to try not to get choked up, but <clears throat> as uh, Dr. Salazar mentioned, we lost a child in our community last week. <clears throat> it was a good friend of my daughter's, so it's hard. Uh, <clears throat> we have a lot of work to do, uh, and so this lecture is dedicated to Gabe. So, gotta move on from that. I'll, I'll lose it a little bit. Sorry. Uh, so, I wanted to start with our mission, vision, and values here at Connecticut Children's. Um, I don't know the last time I had to admit that I actually read through this, uh, but it's part of our presentation boilerplate PowerPoint. Um, and I was like, oh, I was about to delete it and move it out of the way. And I was like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. And I was like, maybe I should actually read this. And I found this, emotional health. So by a show of hands, how many of our clinicians feel that they address their, their patients' emotional health on a daily basis? Good. That's great. Um, but I know we can do a better job. So the objectives of this talk are to describe the frequency patterns and characteristics of suicide among youth, to understand the value of comprehensive prevention measures, including community and healthcare-based programs, and to describe the Zero Suicide Initiative and how it needs to be implemented at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and incorporated into your practice. Uh, so every good talk tells a story. So easiest story I could tell is my own um, and start with why me? So why is a pediatric emergency medicine doctor talking about suicide. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, um, but uh, a couple years ago I was voluntold that I'd be helping out with the psychiatric volume issues in our ED. Um, and this is kind of, yeah, Gary gets mad at me for using this slide because it's one of those and Gary just made that face, but um, <laughs> I, I propose to you that this is an abstract representation of how it feels to work in the ED when we have large volumes of mental health patients. <laughs> Chaotic and sometimes un un illegible. Uh, but it, this does tell an important story. Back in 2000, uh, we saw this nice flat line, uh, a low volume of 650 patients that year. And just 15 years later, we see this very a huge seasonal variation in mental health patients presenting to our ED, and the numbers are up to 3,300, so from 650 to 3,300 patients. No other patient population in our ED has grown at that rate. And all, all these patients present a potential high risk for suicide, so very difficult population to deal with. So at that time, we said, is this just us? I mean, is it just Connecticut? Is it just Connecticut Children's? So I partnered with my colleague, Jesse Sturm. We looked at the <clears throat> FIS database. That's the Pediatric Hospital Information System. Uh, we looked at children birth to 17 years, looked at five years worth of data, and we looked at 44 US children's hospitals across the country. That allowed us to look at 13 million visits. Uh, over 150,000 of those were uh, involved a psychiatric diagnosis. And we broke things up to look for trends in the country in terms of regions. But the bottom line of this story is all, all of the regions across the country, including that purple line that represents just the national trend, have a statistically significant increase in pediatric 
mental health visits to EDs. So my conclusion at that time was, like I said, significant increases in pediatric ED psych volumes. These patients consume vast resources in already busy pediatric emergency departments, and most providers receive relatively limited amount of formal mental health training. So research and quality improvement <coughs> excuse me, efforts need to be a priority for this area. So, and at that time I said, well, where do I start? Well, as an ER doc, we gotta triage the things that we do. And so suicide was clearly the most urgent issue. Greater than 39,000 Americans end their own lives every year. <clears throat> Excuse me, 500,000 people are treated in USEDs for self-inflicted injuries, and greater than a million people attempt suicide on an annual basis. This costs the United States greater than $10.4 billion a year. How many people are familiar with this chart? These are whiskers charts from the CDC. Uh, actually, here I can do it. I guess I can do a pointer here. So I'd like to just bring your attention to the green squares. Um, and so these are the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S. Um, you know, first columns at what, less than one year, one to four, five to nine, and then boom, 10 to 14. Suicide rose from the third to the second leading cause of death in that age range last year, or two years ago. Um, so this is a huge problem for our youth. It remains the second leading cause all the way through the age of 34 and stays in the top 10 <clears throat> causes of death throughout our lifetimes. This is a huge problem. So looking at Connecticut and borrowing this slide from the Connecticut Department of Public Health, suicide is, accounts again for the second leading cause of death for our youth in Connecticut, 15 to 19 years of age, at 18% of those deaths. Top three use suicide methods in the, <clears throat> in the country uh, are firearms, followed by suffocation, and a distant third is poisoning. And I literally just got data from the Child Advocate's Office yesterday afternoon that I didn't include, but um, in Connecticut specifically, uh, over the last 15 years, 99 children died by hanging and 22 from gunshot wounds with a distant six who uh, took drugs to kill themselves. Uh, how many people are familiar with the Youth Risk Behavior Survey? So I turned to this to kind of get an insight into what are kids thinking? Like, like, why is this happening? What's going on? This is an anonymous survey that they conduct every two years in high schools, uh, and it gives us an idea of what's going on in our high school age kids' minds. So, and I broke this up into a classroom, just, say, just to give a visual. So assuming that we have a classroom of 30 students, uh, how many of you think they felt sad or hopeless for two weeks or more in the past year, which would be an indirect measure of potential depression? Eight students. That's 26% of our student population in high school have a potential to be depressed, which fits with a lot of our other data, including ED data. Out of those eight students, how many of them said they got the help they needed when they were feeling that way? Two. Just two out of the eight. So 25% of the kids that need help are getting it. In that same classroom, if we asked them if they had seriously considered attempting suicide one or more times in the past year, how many think that would be? Four students. 15% of our student population has seriously considered suicide in the past year. How many actually attempted it? This is the part that gets me. So they've attempted it in the past year one or more times. Two or three students. 8% of our student population reports that they've actually attempted suicide. 
that blows away all those other numbers that I just posted. And these are anonymous surveys, this is their self-perception, but it's reality. Oops. So how many of them do you think saw a doctor, nurse, or counselor about that stress or depression? I gave you the answer. So, so only seven of those students actually saw a person and sought help. So, so let's hear about what's happening in the community to prevent this. Marisa's gonna come up and talk to us. Um, and I do wanna say this, this lecture is not supposed to be depressing. This is supposed to be a lecture that gives you hope and gives us <clears throat> uh, the inspiration to move forward. Marisa? Hi, thank you for um, allowing me to present um, my story. And um, let me find out where I'm going here. Huh? Here we go. All right. Um, I'm going to start by letting, just telling you a little bit about my son. Uh, my son Jordan was a freshman in college when he died by suicide six years ago. Um, it was his second semester. He, was, he attended um, college with um, a bunch of friends from high school and um, grammar school. Uh, he's the last kid in the world that you would think that would die by suicide. He had a bunch of friends. He, he was very active, loved to be outdoors. Um, kind of your typical high school you know, or 18-year-old boy. He was, um, um, you know, just seemed like a happy-go-lucky kid. Um, when we talk about protective factors in this world, you know, in this world of suicide prevention, um, my son had the protective factors. He also had a career social work mom who talked about this stuff all the time. These weren't taboo subjects in my home. So we talk about mental health, taking care of yourself, reaching out for help if you need it. These were, you know, these were, you know, conversations in our home. Um, so when I talk about my son, I'm like, he knew better, right? Um, uh, in terms of his, I'm sure that you're asking yourselves, you know, did he have a prior history of suicide attempts, mental illness? No, he didn't. Um, not that we knew of. Um, obviously, there's a lot of kids out there that can put a, a great game face on and push forward, but they're struggling internally. Um, I can tell you that um, what we did find out about my son, and I think this is all important, that it was a very impulsive act, um, and, and that is a lot of stuff that comes out when you're talking about young adolescent boys dying by suicide. Um, there was uh, indication of weight loss. Um, he seemed a bit agitated, and he just wasn't himself, according to his friends. Um, and in terms of the ripple effect on a community, um, I can't even, I don't even have to get into what it did to my family, but in terms of the community, the community up at the college and the community, um, his high school community and his friends and family, I mean, it, it does have long-lasting effects on all the young adults in, um, in his life and obviously all the family members. And um, I'm one of those people that started a foundation after her son died. And so his experience and what we learned really... Um, kind of set the foundation for what we designed, and I'll get, that, I'll get into that later. So in terms of the scope of the problem, and I know um, Steve talked about it a little bit, so you know, half, half, of, half of the kids with mental health diagnosis aren't receiving mental health care, which is an issue, right? Um, and in terms of contacts with the healthcare system, uh, you got three quarters of adolescents visited a healthcare provider within a year, and most healthcare contacts were within weeks um, prior to the death by suicide. And for reasons other, related to other than um, in mental health issues. So, and I can tell you, my son was that statistic. My son saw his pediatrician about five weeks before he died and also saw his dentist.
In terms of the scope of the problem with this issue in terms of transitioning, so we know developmentally um, transition times at any, any time in your life are stressful um, at, any, you know, at any age. Um, what we did, um, and this is I'm just kind of go back in terms of some conducting some research on transi uh, transition issue for, for kids transitioning out of high school. Um, we partnered up with the um, Jed Foundation and the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids um, to conduct a first ever survey of 1,500 second semester freshmen across the country to talk about these issues. What was it like for you as a senior in high school? What was it like for you first semester? And what is it like for you right now as a second semester freshman student? And um, what we learned was kind of what we were thinking about in terms of, you know, in terms of, um, you know, what these issues are for college students. We spend so much time in high school um, getting students read academically ready for transitioning to college, but we don't really talk about the emotional stuff, right? And that's what gets kids in trouble in college, right? So. 87% said there was much more fo focus on the academics. So, you know, what's your SAT scores? How many AP classes you're taking? 77% um, said social media, TV, all that makes it seem a lot more fun than it really is. Because about six weeks into your first semester in college, you get the reality of, wow, I got to work here. You know, this is really tough. I got to get along with roommates. I got to, you know, I, um, I miss my family, you know. And 51% uh, said it, they found it difficult to find the help that they needed. Um, and in terms of college students, this is pretty much a consistent um, statistic um, over the last six years that we've seen. Um, you know, about one in ten college students contemplate suicide, um, and 34% felt that it, they were so depressed it was difficult for them to function. I mean, look at that number, like almost 7 million students said that they can't function in college. And again, um, this, this, this population represents our future. And in terms of um, utilization of services on college campuses, like an increase of 50%, and basically it's for um, the students that are presenting at high risk. So you look at um, that issue in terms of being able, needing to triage the toughest risk students. I mean, it's a really, it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough burden on the counseling centers. Let's see. Okay. Oh, I went backwards. Hold on, hold on, here we go. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the foundation. So we, this is our mission. Um, pretty much it's to prevent suicide, promote mental health, and, and create a message of hope. And we do this by um, really keeping our programming positive and engaging. We really, this is a heavy subject to talk about. Nobody really wants to talk about suicide prevention. Nobody really wants to talk about mental health. So we designed some programs that really kind of keep it engaging and keep it upbeat and positive. Um, our signature program uh, is Fresh Check Day. It's um, like a mental health suicide prevention fair. We work very closely with college campuses across the country now. We piloted our first um, event at Eastern Connecticut State University in 2012. The concept took off. We more than doubled every year in terms of our capacity here in Connecticut. And um, now we are um, working with colleges and we've got 95 schools in 30 states in over five years. So it's obviously a program that colleges really um, feel that really connects with students and really provides a different type of messaging. Um, we've designed this to really cast a wider net for participation because most kids aren't going to go to a suicide prevention event or a mental health event. You're going to get a very small population of students that are really going to be drawn to that. We've, we've designed a program that really um, is peer-centered, it's peer-run, it's fun, it's uplifting. Um, it provides all kinds of um, 
incentives, like the kind of stuff that kids want. They want t-shirts, they want, they want giveaways, they want um, therapy dogs, and they want food. So in terms of engaging, um, and, and really, it, it, and the way it's designed is that you might be not even intending to go to this event, but you see what's going on on campus, you're like, oh, what's going on here? And then you get engaged, because it's all peer-centered. So the peers, are, the peers that are running the, the different organizations on campus are really providing the messages to their peers. Um, we've been working with the Injury Prevention Center, and um, we've had the, you know, we've, we're very grateful for, the, for their ability to analyze our data. Uh, on a wide scale, and our program actually works. You can see the results there. 80%, 86% are more likely to seek help um, after our event. 90 are more percent are more aware of the available resources on campus, and 87% are more prepared to help a friend because we kind of embed the suicide prevention really quick gatekeeping type messaging as a mandatory uh, booth on our um, for our event. We also, um, kind of based on demand of the people that we're working with, everybody's been saying you need to start, start this conversation a lot earlier. So we've been, uh, we've, we're piloting and developing our For What's Next program, which is really a um, student-led program that we are hoping to um, pilot again in, in, in fall. We've also we've, um, piloted this in four high schools uh, in Connecticut and Massachusetts to really start talking about um, life beyond high school. And again, not limited to attending college, but perhaps uh, entering the military, going into the workforce, um, really having a safe space for students to talk about things other than academics, <coughs> other than all the pressures it, it takes. What is it going to be like? What are your coping skills? How do you communicate with people? How do you manage conflict? Again, the soft skills that get kids in trouble when, once they're out of their protective, kind of nurturing high school environment where they know everybody. The other program that we have is a 9 out of 10 program. It's an ambassador program. We actually um, have some students over at the Injury Prevention Center that are going to pilot this this spring. Um, the 9 out of 10 program is, an, uh, this ambassador program really is an opportunity for students to have a voice on campus without having to go through all the hurdles of um, putting together a big event like Fresh Check Day where you need a lot of um, administrative kind of buy-in. Because um, you think about it, I mean, with the statistics that were talked about earlier, there's not many kids that are going to college right now um, that haven't been affected by a death by suicide or untimely death of a young person. And so sometimes kids just need a, a, a mechanism to have this, to be able to talk about or do something about it in terms of, in a, in a healthy and safe way. So that's what we developed with the nine out of 10 program. Um, and again, um, our, in terms of our collaboration with the Injury Prevention Center, uh, we've been working, we're gonna be working on all three programs with them. And kind of in closing, I just wanted to say, um, you know, again, this is not, these aren't easy conversations to have, but I think um, for all the different professionals and uh, clinicians in this room, um, it doesn't matter what discipline you're in, what you're doing. I mean, um, I think we need to kind of approach suicide prevention as this is everybody's responsibility. And um, people who have long-term relationships with patients that come in here, young adults that come in here, it's a great opportunity to open up that conversation, kind of talk about not, hey, you know, which college or what are you doing here? Kind of talk about the real conversations, how you're feeling. Um, obviously, there's high risk related to some chronic illnesses. Um, and so being a young adult presents a risk as it is right now with being the second leading cause of death, but then you add some of the other physical um, 
physical issues that the kids are dealing with and those kind of stressors. So I think it's um, important for everybody to have an opportunity to become educated in this area, to have comfort, or even if you don't feel comfortable, knowing who to go to to have these conversations, especially because you know your kids. You know your kids are coming over and over again. And kind of opening that dialogue will reduce stigma. <laughs> will, will um, you know, I'm sure a lot of these kids that come in are looking up to you guys. And so if, if it's okay for you guys to talk about it, maybe it'll be okay for them and also to reach out. That's it. Thank you. Did I take my tip on yours? Thanks, Marisa. That was great. So hopefully she's lifted the spirits in the room a little bit and we've started to talk about some programs and uh, my colleagues and I at the Injury Center, specifically Kevin Borb and I, um, looked at our community and said, so what's going on with the pediatricians in Connecticut? How are they addressing mental health practices? Uh, and so we did a survey uh, a, a couple years ago that looked at a uh, focus on suicide and we found that only 32% of our pediatricians perform a suicidal ideation screening as a part of their regular practice. Only 44% have educational materials available about suicide in their practice, and 58% provide some type of lethal means restriction counseling, or I should say even knew what it was. Uh, in fact, how many of you out there by raise of hands know what lethal means restriction counseling is? Awesome. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about that as well, though. Uh, we asked them about their attitudes and beliefs um, towards suicide counseling and discussions. Uh, only about 75% felt like they were confident to make the referral process for suicide issues. 70% uh, felt confident to discuss it at all. And only 60% felt that they were confident to assess the risk of suicide. Uh, and sadly, only 80% felt that suicidality was a problem in their patient population. So, uh, our conclusions after that survey are that many pediatricians are not confident in screening and identification as well as counseling. They're less confident that the less confident pediatricians, when we did a sub-analysis, uh, reported lower levels of mental health assessment and counseling. So that's kind of one of those duh things, which is if you're not confident, you're not going to do it. And so uh, our response to that was two programs or two things that we're working on now. One is educating pediatricians in the community or EPIC, and I'll show you a little bit about that and then talk to you about our net network of mental health care analysis that's ongoing right now. Um, so we partnered with the Child Health and Development Institute. I see Lisa in the audience. Hi, Lisa. Uh, and we are providing education and pediatric practices about youth suicide. Uh, it's been a very enlightening process. Uh, one of the key slides or take-home presentations that we do uh, is this slide. We talk about early identification, uh, parental self-recognition, and doing screening within their practices. We talk about connecting to services and utilizing uh, our great state service, which is emergency mobile psychiatric services may be better described as crisis management um, and then harm prevention and we talk about lethal means restriction counseling and how they can do this in their practice and for those of you who aren't familiar lethal means restriction counseling is when we inform parents that the child is at increased risk for suicide we explain that they can reduce this risk by limiting their child's access to any lethal means and specifically in Connecticut that includes ropes and cords but generally applies to guns medications and alcohol um, and then educating parents and problem solving with them 
about how to limit their access to lethal means. If you want more information, meansmanner.com is a great way to sort of get yourself up to speed and learn more about lethal means restriction counseling. So uh, Kevin and I work, are working with the state around Public Act 13178. We're in a subcommittee or a work group within uh, the Mental Health Advisory Board for Children. Uh, I'm a member of the advisory board and we realized that um, we needed to have a better picture of what's going on uh, in children's mental health and pediatric practices. So we're working to describe factors impacting pediatricians' adherence to best practice recommendations around mental health. We're creating visualizations of the current system and I'll show you one of them and identifying opportunities for action towards a truly integrated system of mental health care for kids. Um, and this is a very complicated example of a mapping that we're going to uh, utilize to help identify some of those opportunities to improve mental health care networks that pediatricians can rely upon. Uh, some of the other prevention projects that I'm working on, uh, lethal means restriction study is ongoing in the emergency department. Our goal there is to identify the best method of providing lethal means restriction counseling. Uh, our enhanced care coordination project, uh, as well uh, as well as the Injury Prevention Center, we're working with the Office for Community Child Health uh, and the Center for Care Coordination to provide care, care coordination for emergency patients that go, uh, I'm sorry, mental health patients that leave the emergency department to go home. Uh, and we're also, uh, starting with this lecture, working towards zero suicide project or initiative. Uh, and we've partnered with our colleague, Rob Asseltine at UConn with a grant that's currently submitted. Uh, and we're gonna learn more about the proposed work there. Again, another program or another opportunity that we found through the Office for Community Child Health. Um, but briefly before I have Rob come up, I'm just going to describe what Zero Suicide Initiative is. Um, and they specifically asked that I read their text um, and that I shouldn't deviate from it uh, because they want their message to be uh, scripted somewhat. But I want you to think about how well this fits with some of our other initiatives at the hospital, uh, including Safety Starts With Me and Start With Heart. Um, these were both culture-changing initiatives, and I believe Zero Suicide could be the same thing. Zero, uh, the Zero Suicide Initiative believes that suicide is preventable. The Zero Suicide approach aims to improve care and outcomes for individuals at risk of suicide in healthcare systems. Attempting to reduce suicides for patients in care to zero may seem impossible, but what other numbers should we strive for? Several healthcare systems who have implemented this comprehensive suicide care approach have already seen significant reductions in suicide among their patient population with rates of suicide being reduced as much as 70 to 80% for those in their care. The Zero Suicide Initiative emphasizes the need to transform healthcare for those at risk for suicide. Uh, and these are some of the core components. Again, I was asked to read directly from their script, so I'll try to be brief, but um, their components are, uh, include uh, a comprehensive system-wide approach. All of the following are essential elements. We must have leadership-driven, safety-oriented culture that includes suicide attempt and lost survivors in those planning roles. We must have a component, a competent, sorry, not a component, a competent, confident, and caring workforce where suicide care is not relegated to just the clinical staff, but rather everyone in the organization sees suicide care as part of their responsibility and mission. We must use standardized, evidence-based tools to identify and assess risk and ask about suicide at every visit for those we deem at risk. Every person at risk for suicide should have a suicide care management plan. 
Um, care should include safety planning and restriction of lethal means when patients have known risk for suicide. We must, we must ensure our patients get effective evidence-based treatments. We must provide continuous contact and support for those at risk, which we're already doing for our mental health patients through the Center for Care Coordination. So we've got some of this capacity already built. And finally, we should track our efforts and use data to continuously improve our approach. For an organization to truly establish meaningful change and comprehensive suicide care policies, training, and guidelines need, need to be in place to support these dimensions with staff dedicated to the mission. And now I'm going to turn the mic over to Rob, give us some insight into how we can do this um, and <coughs> minimize our efforts, actually, in doing it. So with a very novel and innovative approach. Rob? Thanks very much, Steve. By the way, Marissa, that was my alarm that went off while you were talking. I apologize. My, uh, my daughter was away for spring break and flying back, and so I had an alarm set for her texts. She says she loves me and needs money. Okay. So uh, Steve gave a really nice introduction to, uh, to the Zero Suicide Initiative, and in the grant he alluded to, um, we're focused on one very specific part of this, which is risk identification. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about why that's essential to zero suicide initiatives. Um, we have been doing work with uh, data from Connecticut we think is, is fairly novel and innovative uh, around risk assessment for suicide. And I'm going to give you an example of how we've been doing it and then just give you a glimpse of what we think the future looks like if NIH cooperates with us uh, in terms of, uh, of moving forward. There we go. Okay, so to reaffirm what Marissa was uh, saying about the need for better identification of patients at risk, the key component here is that patients at risk of suicide are in the healthcare system. They are seeing uh, providers on both an inpatient and outpatient basis, and studies show that there's a, a, a tremendous recognition of the fact, well, well a, a tremendous amount of contact, but very little recognition of the fact that these folks are at such high mental health risk. And so the, the, one of the key problems, and the National Alliance for uh, uh, Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention has set this as a, as a priority for research, is to be able to create these comprehensive linked data sets that allow us to identify patients at risk, since these patients are in the system and now with these very comprehensive EHR platforms that we've created, have data that might allow us to identify their level of risk. There is research to support this sort of effort, that we can use this data to create predictive models of who is most at risk. Most of these, though, deal with very high-risk populations, such as veterans returning, are within siloed healthcare systems, such as the VA system, uh, or tend to be within a particular hospital context. So they're very much confined. Uh, they're based on limited data within those systems. And while they're effective, they may not generalize outside of those particular systems. So to date, as we have sought to do this here in Connecticut, our key asset has been hospital claims. Um, Connecticut's hospital inpatient discharge database, which is collected by the Connecticut Hospital Association, actually collected by all of you, and then sent into the hospital association, and ultimately reported into the Department of Public Health, um, is a really neat all-payer repository of inpatient hospital claims. We have data dating back to 2005, which is kind of a, a period of consistency that we were able to establish in over the last decade. 
And suicidal behavior is identified in this comprehensive data set using both E-codes in ICD-9 nomenclature uh, and ICD-9 code combinations uh, because not all providers are equally adept at or willing to use E-codes to designate uh, an event as, as, a, as a suicidal behavior. These tend to be very, very serious medical events. The average length of stay is close to five days. A third of patients are discharged to a psychiatric facility. Uh, so they are definitely very serious medical events uh, and certainly worthy of prevention in their own right, let alone the fact that they, they serve as a, as a marker for and risk factor for death by suicide. Now arriving on the scene, and this is just open for business now, is Connecticut's All-Pair Claims Database. Now, that will improve upon, in some ways, the hospital discharge database by including ambulatory claims. We'll also have pharmacy claims as well. So we will be able to track patients outside uh, the hospital system, which is really critical, since we only have about 425,000 inpatient hospitalizations uh, per year in Connecticut. So less than 10% of the population ever gets an inpatient stay. So we don't want to just use inpatient hospitalization as a predictive tool to assess suicide risk. So the APCD we think is going to be a, 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 uh, an improvement on our surveillance capabilities. And then ultimately coming, and this is pretty exciting since it was just launched uh, last week, is a health information exchange here in Connecticut that the Connecticut State Medical Society uh, is now building uh, in partnership with, uh, with an entity out of the state of Kansas, which has a, a very successful health information exchange that's been established in that state and is now being deployed in South Carolina and Georgia as well as Connecticut. So this was, a, this was announced last week at Doctor's Day at the Capitol uh, and will be a, a, a really, really, hopefully, uh, enormous advantage for us in grabbing data from EHR systems to supplement our efforts. So let me give you an example of how we've used these data. Uh, coming back to the, the, our inpatient hospital claims database, to identify patients um, who've attempted suicide, been hospitalized for suicide in the past, and then determine what are the predictive factors uh, for risk for future death by suicide. Um, we drew on eight years of claims data from the HIDD uh, with inpatient su suicide attempts numbering over 15,000. And we modeled the survival time of patients after their most recent admission following a suicide attempt. And ultimately, in this population, we had 446 deaths by suicide over that five-year period. So in our modeling, we define the high-risk cohort as those with five-year survival probabilities of under 90%. So this is a predictive probability. Now, think about this. The suicide rate among adults in Connecticut is roughly 10 per 100,000. Um, the actual death by suicide in this population was about 3.3, 3.4%. So three and a half out of 100. We were looking at a high risk cohort that was about 4% of that, and they had a 15% three year mortality. So this is a super high risk group. And if we look at what markers that we were able to pull, these are the significant features that we pulled from looking at all ICD-9 code combinations, uh, all 13,000 of them, in addition to other demographic uh, characteristics and features of the event. And you see that there are four here that are markers, what we would say maybe of severity. Um, 
an attempt, a prior attempt by hanging uh, was a significant predictor of later death by suicide. Uh, I think a lot of folks feel that hanging is, is really a, a level of commitment to do that. And so this is an individual who probably um, had been planning and, uh, and, and, and ultimately working toward that end. Um, we see things like operations on the esophagus or the tongue, which are typically coming from the ingestion of a substance that is doing an awful lot of internal damage. And then ultimately, if they were discharged uh, to a psychiatric facility post-attempt, their later risk of death was, was much, much higher. Now, there are a couple of other things that, that emerged from this that were really interesting uh, because they, they are features that would be fairly easy for us to monitor and track in a, in a hospitalization event. And those are the two V codes here where uh, a clinician would code an other psychosocial circumstances associated with the suicide attempt or other person seeking consultation. And you're thinking, well, you know, that's not odd at all in a suicide attempt. Of course, there were psychosocial circumstances. We know a lot about that as a predictive factor. And of course, there might be family members or friends that are seeking input or consultation. But think about what this is. This is that if this was coded in the initial attempt, their risk of later death is significantly increased. So it's an interesting feature. You would think it would probably be coded in most of these, but it is not. And so when it's there, it tends to be a distinctive feature uh, for, for risk of, of later death. And then finally, one feature that came out of the blue at us, which were operations on the penis, which uh, reflect genital mutilation. And that could be caused primarily by the clinician says, we've kicked this around by either some sort of gender identity disorder uh, or uh, which would reflect some significant risk for folks who are, are transgender or transitioning, or psychosis, which is another major uh, risk factor for this. But it is interesting because we only had, it's very rare, we only had 10 cases of this, uh, but uh, two, 20% uh, subsequently died within that five-year period. So let's talk about how to take this to the next level. Uh, so inpatient claims are great, but we've got a lot of other sources of information that I alluded to. So here we are presenting a vision for how we might unify data from multiple sources to really improve and ramp up our predictive capabilities. We would like to combine EHR data, which has lots of standardized coding that's reflected in our claims data from potentially the all-para claims database or the hospital inpatient discharge database, we have standardized ways of coding diagnoses, procedures, uh, med lists, and problem notes. Uh, these are standardized across EHR platforms and then across data types as well. Um, and we have the potential to link that with mortality data, which we did in the previous example that I showed you, to have include that as an ultimate marker for risk. One of the things we're really focused on, and I think Steve's data was, um, uh, instructive in this regard is the importance of being able to embed screening results. There is a, a big push to be doing active screening for patient suicide risk. There's a couple very good tools for this. The PHQ-9, which is very commonly used in clinical settings, has a suicidal ideation question associated with it, which could be used as a patient reported outcome to enable us to, uh, to really understand risk in, uh, in a better way. So, and this is kind of how it all comes together. This is a tough thing to bring together data from these very 
different sources in a way that you can, you can create a unified modeling framework. What this is is a picture of a multimodal data fusion approach to these data. And um, I'm going to, for the sake of time and also not to show the limits of my understanding of my good statistician colleague, Ku Chen, um, go through this relatively quickly. But if you think about the top right-hand corner of this, we have lots of multimodal data. And this is data from EHRs, from claim systems, uh, where we might be doing active patient screening in some contexts. And the problem with this data is we, it tends to be, uh, have lots of structured missingness to it. There are folks where we're going to be able to capture data from their EHR systems, but there are folks whose providers won't be participating or there'll be opt-outs of any kind of uh, health information exchange and we'll be missing their data. Same thing is true with claim systems. Uh, in the state of Connecticut, our claim system ultimately hopes to be able to get about 50 to 60% of all patient claims because of issues around uh, the Gobel decision by the Supreme Court, which limits what can be reported into these systems, as well as other exempt individuals. So we have this missingness in, in this data structure that's extremely problematic. What we can do as we move down into that lower white, right quadrant is develop a strategy to model that data in a way that fills in those blanks. We used observed associations to be able to create a parameter matrix that fills in that missing data. So if you were screened for suicide risk or depression, and you also had pharmacy claims associated with uh, treatment for uh, depression, and you also had an EHR uh, uh, depression noted in your problem list, we can use the relationship between those features and then fill in the blanks for people missing one or more of those features. Ultimately, that leads to a data fusion process where we're extracting both common and specific factors to be predictive of suicide risk. And then ultimately, uh, this type of modeling has to be validated by clinical experts because we could be pulling out features that are really uninformative. I mean, I might say to Steve, hey, look for this in your patients. This is what our modeling tells us. And Steve might say, uh, duh, you know, we kind of know this already, we're ready for it. Uh, or he could say, well, you know, the reason why that gets pulled out is because of this. It's not really that. It's that that feature that you've identified as a marker for something else. So clinical review of this is, is really critical as a final step. So takeaways uh, from this. There really is a lot of available data that could be used for suicide risk assessment. We're frankly only scratching the surface in being able to do that. And part of the reason is that there are really big challenges to doing this. Um, I have the Massachusetts All Pair Claims Database. Uh, I have that data. We've been using it to actually model suicide risk. It's really tough. Five years of data, 4.4 million patients over five years. It's a billion claim lines. It's very, very difficult for us to get a handle on that. Um, and as we move into ICD-10, now we're talking about predictive modeling with over 140,000 code combinations in ICD-10. So it, it really, it's going to keep our statisticians fully employed for quite a long time. Um, what I, we think is critical, and this is what we're trying to model here, is a partnership with Connecticut Children's and other healthcare facilities that bring the academic expertise with the clinical expertise and access to, to patient populations and patient <coughs> care resources in order to make this, this fly. 
Um, and the big incentive, I think, uh, to get healthcare providers engaged in this is, you know, frankly, the lack of ROI associated with their current investments in health information technology. Um, I think you know, we spent tons of money. Uh, the Yukon Health Center is facing over a hundred million dollar deployment of Epic. Now, um, we need to get some, well, we need to get more out of these systems. And if we can successfully model this type of risk, I think it presents a very compelling return on investment for the healthcare system. So thanks, I'll turn it back over to Steve.